According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. This morning, we are moving on to Isaiah chapter 16. Isaiah chapter 16. Our ambitious project is now 16 weeks underway whereby we have a goal to cover the book of Isaiah in 66 weeks. 66 uh, chapters, one per week. We're going to follow that up with the book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters in 52 weeks. And if the Lord allows for this pace to continue, we're going to learn quite a bit in uh, the survey of these two great prophetic books. If um, you feel like you're on a roller coaster and it's just whizzing by far too quickly, then uh, I recommend the 9.30 hour, where we have spent the last three weeks in a single verse of Galatians chapter 2. And if you want to slug it out on the in-depth basis of the exegesis from Galatians chapter 2, then that is the uh, the 9.30 service, as well as the midweek, Wednesday evening at uh, 7.30. This hour is our survey. This hour is the height and, and breadth of Scripture. And uh, as I say, we're going to try to cover one chapter per Sunday, at least uh, until the Lord returns. If uh, the trumpet sounds, by the way, then I'm done. We're not, not going to teach any more of Isaiah if uh, the trumpet sounds and we are caught up to glory. All right, send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. We're going to pick up the message against Moab that we uh, started with last week. Moab covers both chapter 15 and 16, two chapters dealing with the Moabites, and uh, we'll pick up where we left off one week ago today. Happy New Year, by the way. Welcome to Austin Bible Church. All right, let's open with a word of prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's humble our hearts under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do rejoice over your faithfulness day by day, morning by morning, new mercies we see. Father, and this new year is now upon us. We thank you for your faithfulness to provide, your faithfulness to meet our every need. We have a lampstand here, Father, with the doors open, the lights are on, the bills are paid. You are faithful. You are so faithful, Father. Provide for our needs at this time as the word of God goes forth. Honor your word, honor your promise that your word will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And we thank you on this day in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. The Moabites are given the same advice the Philistines were given. The Moabites are given the same advice the Philistines were given. Take refuge in the God of Israel. Take refuge in the throne of David. We're in a stretch here that really goes back to the end of chapter 14. After the great prophecy related to Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, we start to get into a series of oracles towards the nations. And at the end of chapter 14, it started in verse 28. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came and it says, Do not rejoice, O Philistia. And the rest of chapter 14 dealt with Yahweh's instructions to the Philistines. Then in chapter 15, we have, and 16, we have the instructions to Moab. And they're given the same advice the Philistines are given. The God of Israel is your only hope. The the judgment is about to come upon the entire earth. And we understand this is tribulational in its focus. This is looking forward in eschatology to the end times. And the only hope that a Gentile nation is going to have is to submit themselves to the God of Israel. And uh, this is the advice here. Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land. 
This is when the whole world is following after the dragon. The whole world is dazzled by the beast, by the Antichrist. And the whole world is in amazement at this new world order that's about to come over the earth. And the prime number one enemy there, as far as Antichrist is concerned, is the Jewish people. But what God says is, the Jewish people is your only hope. You must turn to Israel. You must turn to the God of the Jews. Yahweh Elohim, send tribute to the mountain of Zion, as we see it here. Send the tribute lamb to the ruler of the land from Salah by the way of the wilderness of the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Then, verse 2, like fleeing birds or scattered nestings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of the Arnon. The daughters of the Moab were some of the biggest snares in Israel's side. They were the, the women that would seduce the Jewish men. They, they brought judgment upon Israel during their wilderness wanderings. The, the curse at Peor was because of the Moabite women and all of their uh, the, uh, the uh, idolatry that they introduced the Jewish men to. We looked at that last week. Now they're going to flee to the Lord of Israel. They're going to turn to the Lord like Ruth turned to the Lord. And Ruth said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I will live in your land. And Ruth sets the pattern for what all of Moab or repentant Moab will fulfill at the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. When does that ever happen? All right. Hide the outcast. Do not betray the fugitive. I enjoy this quite a bit. I enjoy what this verse cries out for because the real fulfillment of this is in the millennial kingdom. And yet, this verse, I think, contains a, a kernel of truth that exposes a lot of humanity and a lot of our wishful thinking. We are humans cry out for leadership. Humans cry out for somebody with some answers and make a decision. Give us leadership. And all of the the false approaches where humanity is looking for the right politician, the right government leader, the right economic system, the right whatever, and they're crying out for it. And Satan is all too happy to provide them every substitute imaginable. But ultimately speaking, the one we're looking for is Jesus Christ. If we want a hero between now and the time he arrives, we're just setting ourselves up for for disappointment, for a satanic disappointment. Give us advice. Make a decision. I love this. Give us advice. advice, Make a decision. The blessings of what Moab is going to become in the millennial kingdom, they have a future. The Moabites will be established in security in their land in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Moab will call out for the wonderful counselor. They're going to call out for the prince of peace, the shoot from the stem of Jesse. We've seen glimmers of this already in the book of Isaiah. There will be more coming up. In the later chapters of Isaiah in particular, we get marvelous pictures of what the the glory of the millennium is going to be. In these early chapters, all we get are glimpses in between usually the wrath and the the oracles and all of the the doom that comes in the early chapters of, uh, of Isaiah. But Moab will call out for the wonderful counselor, the shoot from the stem of Jesse. Back in chapter 9, you remember these titles that he was given? Isaiah 9, this was only seven weeks ago. It says, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and the very first of his names he will be called Wonderful Counselor. You talk about a political leader that has all the answers. 
These days, we just have political leaders that claim to have all the answers. They promise you they have all the answers. They, you know, if you listen to their stories, they're, they're the most brilliant people that have ever walked the planet. And then, you know, we find they're human, just the same as us. But Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, we can call up out to him for his judgment. And when he renders his judgment, it will be righteous judgment, as we see here. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this is the promise we have in Isaiah 9. And the Moabites are going to embrace that. We have this uh, pictured here in Isaiah chapter 16. Over to chapter 11, the other chapter that gave us a glimmer, gave us a clue with respect to this. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And all the beauty of of our Savior and how he came in the humility of the virgin birth, how he came in the humility of his childhood, how he lived the human experience, and how he grew up as is described here. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of um, counsel and strength, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Those uh, those typically aren't character traits that show up in political advertisements. We don't see politicians today indicating their spiritual walk as criteria for why you should vote for them. But this is why Jesus Christ will be the greatest king that's ever uh, sat on any throne on this earth. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. This is why Moab can call out to him, why Moab can cling to him and call upon him to give his wisdom, to um, give advice, to make a decision. Moab is going to call out for the wonderful counselor, the shoot from the stem of Jesse. What a delight that's going to be. I'm looking forward to the day that Jesus Christ is is no longer a swear word where people don't shout his name in anger because they hit their thumb with a hammer or something. They shout his name because they love him and they're worshiping him and he is seated on the throne of David. And then it says also here, night at high noon, night at high noon, cast your shadow like night at high noon. They're calling upon him to do this, and he will do this. This will be part of his protective blessing. There's going to be a canopy over Jerusalem. There's going to be a canopy like there had been a canopy over the wilderness wanderings and the, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. There will be a protective cloud over the throne of God in Jerusalem, and they're going to delight in that. It's the visible reminder that God himself is with us. King Emmanuel is on his throne. But the night at high noon is possible because of the night at high noon that we've already seen historically on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. All right? The only reason why Isaiah 16.3 can be fulfilled, the reason why there will be night at high noon in Jerusalem for the millennial kingdom is because there was night at high noon on Friday, April 3rd, when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. 33 AD, when our Savior went to the cross, there was night at high noon. For three hours, God the Father shrouded this world in darkness. For three hours, God the Father turned his back on his son while his son received our sins. He took our place on the cross. 
Join me if you would. Let's take a look at this. Uh, we don't need to read all of the, the parallel, but Matthew 27, 45 is parallel to Mark 15, 33 is parallel to Luke 20, uh, 23, 44. We don't need to read all of them. Let's just grab the, the one here in Matthew. Um, or Luke. Let's do Luke instead. I like Luke. Luke 23. Let's grab Luke 23, 44 and remind ourselves of what was taking place. This uh, Our world has all these bad ideas about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And he was a moral man. He was a teacher. Uh, he was executed because uh, of whatever, jealousy. And they have all these earthly explanations for who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And they don't have the first heavenly clue what Jesus Christ was accomplishing in wrestling with his Father, in accepting our wrath. So we could turn to Matthew twenty-seven forty-five or Mark fifteen thirty-three, but I think we'll do best in Luke 23:44. And the, uh, the the work that he accomplished on the cross, what was he doing? Why was he there? Why was it shrouded in darkness? Uh, they, by the way, it was Nisan 14 in the Jewish calendar, but even again, our modern dates, the, the Gregorian equivalent, okay? Um, they didn't have the month of April back in the day, but this is what we would call it today, given our current calendar. We would call it Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., and this is what he was doing, all right? So um, they came to the place called the skull in verse 33 where they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right, the other on the left, okay? This is a part of his shame, part of his identifying with us. He has to be identified as a criminal, though he was innocent of all things. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. All these people today that have all these earthly ideas of what they think Jesus was or what they think the cross was, fail to realize that he was wrestling with his Father. He was in prayer with his Father. He was interceding on our behalf. The work of the cross was the work of God the Father and God the Son to accomplish our salvation. So they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. And at a certain point in all these proceedings, I mean, they, they, they juried all these trials, they convicted him, they got him the death sentence, they convinced Pilate, uh, Pontius Pilate to put him to death. They did everything they could to kill him, including, I think, the, the, the scourging, the, 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 the whipping and all of that, to, just to find some way to kill him. And now, all of a sudden, they start to change their tune a little bit. They start to taunt him, and they start to say, come down from there, come down from there, Okay. And I think that our adversary was starting to catch on a little bit, start to realize, wait a minute, this might be a trap. <laughs> this might be a surprise. As we were told that the, the rulers of this age did not understand the wisdom of God. If they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I believe he caught on just a little bit too late and started to tease him, saying, come down from there. God doesn't love you. Come down from there. And he doesn't fall for it. He doesn't come down. Okay. He didn't come down. He stayed there, and he did the work. All right. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, if God, if he is the chosen one. And so they're sneering, they're mocking, they're tempting, and he's not going to bite for it. And the other soldiers mocked him, came up offering him sour wine. If you're king of the Jews, save yourself. And then we have the, the verses here. This is why I think Luke is preferable to the other gospel accounts. This is, this is the narrative that has the story of the, of the repentant thief, the penitent thief, and I love this. 
One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You know, he figures this is his ticket out of here too, right? But the other answered, rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed are suffering justly. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. I think this penitent thief on the cross is one of the greatest evangelists I've ever read about. He's given a gospel right here. What's he talking about? Talking about what we've earned or deserved? Talking about what Jesus did not earn or deserve? But talking about the innocent Lamb of God who's taking our place? It's a a powerful gospel message right here, right from his lips. Right when he's hanging there on the cross. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is, this is marvelous, too, because folks that get confused, they think they've got to walk an aisle. This guy didn't walk an aisle. Or they've got to get baptized. Okay, When does this guy get baptized? The, the fact is, all these false ideas about how does a person get saved, this one evangelist right here on, the, on his own personal cross next to Jesus, he blows those all away. He says, no. Salvation is by grace through faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Right there, right where you sit, or right there, right where you hang on a cross, or wherever you are. Faith in Christ is the mechanism by which we receive that gift of eternal life. And so he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Then verse 44, it was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So what we would say today would be from noon, high noon, to three o'clock in the afternoon. All right. The shadow at high noon as if it was night. What Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah chapter 16. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here is the beauty of the plan of God. Here is the focal moment of human history where fallen Adam is redeemed, where the last Adam does to to remedy what the first Adam brought about. Right? The pivotal point of human history. And we have this prophesied 700 years ahead of time by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 16, talking about darkness at high noon. Night at high noon. Well, the only reason it's possible, the only reason it'll be a millennial reality is because it was a uh, reality in his first advent when Jesus Christ went to the cross and gave himself for our place. You cannot have the crown without the cross. It is so vital. Jesus uh, would not take it. Satan kept tempting him, saying, I'll give you all these kingdoms, just bow down and worship me. There are Christians today that want the glory without the suffering. And that whole mindset that you can have the glory without the suffering, you can have the the crown without the cross, is a satanic lie from the pit of hell. The cross will always precede the crown. You want to be glorified in Christ? Great. First, you're going to suffer in Christ, as indeed we all suffer in Christ. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We have these great promises, these great truths. Well, let me get back to Isaiah then. You know, this is the thing. I talked to a man on the phone the other day. He didn't know if he was going to go to heaven or go to hell. He called, left a voicemail, the church number. He's trying to get a hold of Gary Williams. Gary Williams has been in heaven since 2008. And I uh, said, well, you're not going to get a hold of him at this number. <laughs> All right. And uh said, Gary's in heaven. And uh, he was kind of shocked. I said, well, where are you going to be? Are you going to heaven? Are you going to hell? What happens when you die? And he said he didn't know. He thought he was kind of a good person, but he's also done some pretty bad things. So 
Wow, what a horrible, hopeless way to live. Anyway, gave him the gospel on the phone, said, come to Austin Bible Church. All right, love to see you. Love to talk to you more about this. All right, it's not about what we've done. It's because it's what Jesus did. It's what he did in our place that makes the rest of this possible. Back to Isaiah 16 then. Verse 4, let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. We've got some titles here that take us into some of the depths of angelic conflict, that take us into some of the titles for some of the mighty fallen angels that are at work. The destroyer, the extortioner, the uh, destruction, as we see in verse 4. Oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. Some of this was a part of the taunt against Satan in chapter 14. And yet a throne will even be established in loving kindness and a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. <laughs> I know, it's, just, it's discouraging. You think, why can't we have this now? <laughs> why do we have the legal system we have now? All right, well, gives you something to look forward to, right? Gives you something to hope in, something to, to uh, anticipate and pray for. Then verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, It all boils down to pride, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. His idle boasts are false. So we get into our next section here of of this chapter, and we have to deal with his pride. The excessive pride of Moab comes under God's heavy hand of humbling. Oh, God is so good at this. God has been doing this ever since Satan's original sin. Ever since the first sin of Satan, before Adam and Eve were around, angels preceded humanity. And the first sin was not Adam and Eve eating that, that tr- fruit from the tree. The first sin was pride. The first sin was Satan, before his fall, thinking of himself in these exalted ways, dissatisfied with God's placement of him. And so we see the excessive pride here. Sometimes it plays itself out in promiscuity. It plays itself out in adultery. It plays itself out in, in we see a lot of alcohol in this, in this chapter. It plays itself out in dissipation and drunkenness and prodigal living. Sometimes it plays itself out in hyper-religion do-goodism, right? However it plays itself out, what's sitting behind it? It's pride. Pride is sitting behind it, Okay either the pride of of asceticism or the pride of lasciviousness or whatever form of pride it is, it's expressed in all these different ways. And it's the pride that has to be judged. God humbles those who walk in pride. And he exalts those who walk in humility. When we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what does God do? He exalts us at the proper time. But the key is, is, of course, God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And this is what we see here in these verses, verses 6 through 12. We've heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride. Even if his arrogance, his pride and his fury, his idle boasts are false. What, what is it that they're known for? What is it the Moabites are known for? Was their pride. Therefore, Moab will wail. Everyone of Moab will wail. And you will moan. And here's what they're going to moan about in all these terms. You will moan for the raisin cakes of ker Harasheth. And those were as as those who are utterly stricken. We've got a whole string of things that they're being judged for. And we see that while the judgment hits, there is actually a monster party going on. 
Okay, verse after verse after verse is speaking of of alcohol or drugs or sex or some of the other party life that uh, that they were known for, and it all comes crashing down. Okay, it all comes crashing down. Um, verse eight: the fields of Heshbon have withered, and the vines of Sibma as well. So there goes your wine. Even from the vine, the whole uh, the whole crop is destroyed. The Lord of nations have the lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters. Okay? More judgment, which reach as far as Jazer and wandered to the deserts. We talked last week about all the geographical references that are in this chapter and how extraordinary that is. The tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. Therefore, I will weep bitterly for Jazer, for the vine of Sibma. Look at all these alcohol terms that are here. Now, um... Hold your finger here and understand where the parallel is. This very same vision is also given to the prophet Jeremiah. And if you hold your finger at Isaiah 16, you're going to find something extraordinary in Jeremiah 48. Take a quick peek with me here. In Jeremiah 48. And why do we do this? Why do we compare Scripture with Scripture? Because this is how we rightly divide the word of truth. This is how we identify that we're not just simply uh, making stuff up and, and telling you what a verse means or what a chapter means. We let the Bible interpret itself. We find the agreements between these parallel passages. We allow for the Scripture to be its own hermeneutical principle, teaching the reality of these messages. And God is confirming everything by the mouth of these witnesses. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is confirmed. And so he has a message given through Isaiah and then a message given through Jeremiah, fulfillments of these things in the New Testament. All right, so in Jeremiah 48, verses 29 through 33, see if some of this sounds familiar. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance, his self-exaltation. I know his fury, declares the Lord. See, why are the pride people so furious? (laughs) Do you know boastful people, arrogant people? Why why are they mad all the time? Because as proud as they are, it never satisfies them. As good as they are, it never measures up. All right. But it is futile. His idle boasts have accomplished nothing. Therefore, I will wail for Moab. Even for all Moab, I will cry out. I will moan for the men of Kir Heres, more than the weeping for Jazer. I will weep for you, O vine of Sibmah. Your tendrils stretched out across the sea. They reach to the sea of Jazer. Upon your summer fruits and your grape harvest, the destroyer has fallen. Verse 33, So gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab. And I have made the wine to cease from the wine presses. No one will tread them with shouting. The shouting will not be shouts of joy. All right? That's not a happy message. (laughs) Okay? This is, this is the judgment that's going to come upon Moab. And yet, when they respond to it, when they cry out to the God of Israel, when they bring their tribute land to the mountain of Zion, when they humble themselves before the Jewish people, even Moab has a destiny. Even Moab is going to be rescued and be, be, be given a territory in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we see the, uh, the promise here. In fact, it's even in the final verse of the same chapter. We're in Jeremiah 48. It says in verse 47, Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Moab has a future, amazingly enough. 
Okay. So the excessive pride of Moab comes under God's heavy hand of humbling. We're going to study Isaiah 16. We want to study it in tandem with Jeremiah 48. We want to understand what those parallel passages are and how they both come together to tell the complete story. Moab's pride is manifest in unrestrained intoxication. Moab's pride is manifest in unrestrained intoxication. Imagine an entire culture that tries to stay out of its mind as often as they can, from sunup to sundown. Look at all these references from the raisin cakes, which were also uh, esteemed for their alleged um, aphrodisiac-type qualities as part of their sex rituals and whatnot. The vines from verse 8, clusters and tendrils also in verse 8. The vine again in verse 9, summer fruits, in verse 9, the fruitful field from verse 10, vineyards in verse 10, and wine presses. All throughout this passage, we see it's not just simply, it's not, it's not just simply the purpose for which God gave for wine. He has a purpose for wine and the purpose for fermentation and so forth. But what they did with it on an industrial scale, on a national scale, where the entire culture was given over to this dissipation, right? What does Ephesians tell us? Not to get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but to be filled with the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, who's in charge? Okay? And it doesn't have to be wine. It could be anything. Okay? It could be anything that God has. It could be food if you're a glutton. Okay? It could be sex. It could be anything that if you violate God's design for it, if you take it beyond the boundaries it was intended for, if you twist it into a perversion of what He designed it for, all right, then you're entering into the territory for God's judgment. Now, the issues here, you know, you think about where you are surrendering your faculties, where it's just every day is just another day to just get another buzz, right? To, to live in this, this constant life of, of unreality. And there's people, and this is what they do. This is their lifestyle, because the real world is intimidating. You know, the real world is, is not a happy place, so they escape it. And they just live their life in this fog, in this daze. You probably know what I'm talking about, okay? I had some friends in high school, and I don't think there was a day, I don't think there was a single day that, I, that this guy wasn't stoned out of his mind. If, if, if I ever met him not stoned, I probably wouldn't recognize him. It's the, that's, that's who he is. That's his personality. That's his, that's his life. All right. And so God's going to put an end to all of that. Even a nation like this, <coughs> even a nation like this, you know, they, they were giving their tribute. We saw this last week. They were paying 100,000 lambs every year. They were paying all this tribute to, uh, to Ahab and, and all this. They were happy to do it. It bought off their enemies. It brought them a little bit of peace, and it let the party continue. Just let the party continue. Remind you of anybody? All right. Well, by the way, it's not just Moab. By the time we get to the end times, this will be the predominant attitude of all the Gentile nations. That the second advent of Jesus Christ, we're told, it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to be on a global scale that is just eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. It's just going to be from one party to the next to the next to the next. All right. Then we have to understand prophecy and how this chapter comes to an end. Verse 13 and 14. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. Now, wait a minute. 
Why didn't he just say it all at once? <laughs> Why does he stay, say it in stages? Why does he say it in part? In fact, for that matter, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, why didn't he just give him the whole Bible right then and there? <laughs> why? Why go through stages? Why, why give Hebrew scriptures to Hebrew people? Why set them up with a priesthood and with a calendar and with all the animal sacrifices and all the observance? Why not just scrap all that and go straight to the New Testament? Why, why wasn't Adam the first pastor and Eve the first pastor's wife? <laughs> Why do these things in stages? And why give an early message and a later message and a later message? And why give oracles to Isaiah followed by Jeremiah followed by Malachi? Why give messages that have to then be later unfolded with greater specificity and greater detail? See, this is the genius of of God and his plan in unfolding his word in this way. That in, in his wisdom, he is, he is deliberately withholding, like mystery doctrine, deliberately withholding until such time as it is then ready for him to bring into the stewardship that receives it. All right? Adam and Eve wouldn't have had the first clue if they were reading the, the New Testament. <laughs> right? They're, they're trying to read Ephesians. What would, what, if, what would Ephesians have meant to Adam and Eve? Nothing. They wouldn't have understood it anyway. The, the mystery doctrine of Christ in the church, of the, of the body of Christ in, in mystical union with through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Would Adam and Eve had a clue for any of that? Not at all. Even Moses and, the, and, the, and Israel wouldn't have had a clue for any of that. The neat blessings of the unfolding nature of the Word of God is that it allows us to compare Scripture to Scripture and it allows us to compare and contrast the short-term prophecies with the long-term prophecies. And there is so much right here that we would just want to stop and take eight weeks to break down a doctrine on this. That's not what we're going to do, all right? A short-term prophecy supplies the certainty for all the long-term prophecies previously given. And to give different messages in different stages, okay, it's our glory to search them out. It's our glory to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. We're called noble-minded when we search the scriptures to see if these things are so. It's, uh, it's the, the responsibility we have to rightly divide the word of truth, we're told. We, we cut straight. We classify. We systematize. We want to understand every passage of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We don't want to just simply, you know, leave out the parts we don't like <laughs> or be, uh, be, be hypocrites about it, pick and choose and kind of, you know, like my kids at a buffet table, then they go straight to the dessert stuff and you got to follow them along and say, wait a minute, there's vegetables here. The, uh, the point is that we, we take the whole counsel of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and all things come together. And if we come into a, into a, a, a difficulty, we come to a spot and say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Well, then we work at it. We dig at it. We study to show ourselves approved. We allow the Scripture to explain Scripture. We take the clear passage to shed light on the unclear. And we we follow the hermeneutical principles that Jesus himself employed and illustrated for us to to employ as well. And so this is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. Now here's the thing. When he gives a follow-up message, does it replace what came before? Does he say, all right, forget what I told you before. Throw that all out. That's not accurate. Here's the new one. Follow this one. Okay? See? The problem is, is you can never cling to anything then on that basis. 
Because if you're clinging to the latest and greatest, what's, what's to say that that's not going to get chucked out the window tomorrow? Okay? That's not how God built the Scriptures. The Hebrew canon followed by the Greek canon are designed to be comprehensive. They're designed to be synthetic. They're, they're to work together. Okay? And this is what makes our um, faith different from the, the Mormons, from the Muslims, from uh, Roman Catholicism. You say, how do they do that? Because 1,500 years after Christ, they added their Apocrypha to the, to the, uh, to the Catholic Bible. They started to throw the Apocryphal books in between the Old Testament and New Testament, started to throw these extra things in there from the Apocrypha. We're never a part of the canon of Scripture until the Roman Catholic Church needed a defense against the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformers, Luther and Calvin and these guys, they started speaking the truth about sola scriptura, and Roman Catholicism had no answers for them until they started adding these extra books, okay, the Council of Trent. What about the, the, the Muslims? What do they do? They say, throw away the Old Testament, throw away the New Testament. Here is the Quran. Here is the latest and the greatest. And there's all kinds of contradictions, of course, because that's what Satan does. But go ahead and believe this book and pretend those other books were never written because they, they were corrupted, they were changed, they're not true, you can't rely on them, right? And a Muslim will tell you that the Quran is the final revelation. That that's what you believe. That's what you trust. That's what you live by. And you throw away the Old Testament. You throw away the New Testament. Okay? And it's no different than the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith did the same thing. Mormonism does the same thing. It says, throw away your Old Testament. Throw away your New Testament. Here's your Book of Mormon. Okay? Or, I can keep going. You want more of these? Mary Baker Eddy. Okay? Science and health are the key to the Scriptures. How about uh, Charles Taze Russell? What about the Watchtower tracks? In every single one of these cases, we've got, ooh, here's a brand new book, a brand new Bible, a brand new revelation. And because it contradicts, see, Satan can't do what God does. Satan can't write a brand new revelation under the, the Holy Spirit who inspired the Hebrew canon, also inspires the Greek canon, and ensures that there are no contradictions from Genesis to Revelation. But everything Satan puts out has all kinds of contradictions. And that's why he says you've got to throw away that old stuff. Go with the latest. Go with the, the newest one. Okay? Now, this is, this is a beautiful process. And this takes us into some realms of study that I hope are going to be beneficial for, uh, for us down the road. All right. The word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab, but now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with his great population and his remnant will be very small and impotent. All right, now here's an additional message. You got the earlier message, all right? That earlier message is pretty sweeping. That earlier message eschatologically moves forward to after the church is gone. I mean, we're talking second advent, tribulation with most of chapters 15 and 16. That's, that's the earlier message. But now he says, here's, a, here's another message. Within three years. Okay? And he gives specificity. And he gives a very tight timetable. In fact, he gives a prediction that is so clear that everybody listening to him can watch it unfold. And can either stone him to death as a false prophet or humble themselves under Yahweh Elohim and say, wow, this is a prophet of the Lord. 
This is a man that knows what's going to happen. And he knows what's going to happen 2,000 years ago because he told us what's going to happen right here, right now in the short term. That short term immediate prophecy comes true. And this becomes then the certainty for all the long term prophecies. Right? Every time Jesus said, I'm going to die, they're going to put me to death, I will rise again on the third day. I will rise again on the third day. And what happened? He rose again on the third day. That's right. And every one of his apostles, every, and they didn't believe it at the time. <laughs> they ran in fear. They were scared. They were hiding. They were in total despair. Even on Easter Sunday, they don't believe it. The women said, we saw him. No, and they didn't believe the women, right? Then he shows up in the upper room with the doors locked and right there and face to face with him, okay? Then they finally believe. Short-term prophecy, raised on the third day. What do you think that does with respect to the Olivet Discourse, with respect to the Upper Room Discourse, with respect to the things that he said is coming up down the road in the Tribulation, the Millennial Kingdom of Israel? Okay? They're guaranteed. They're guaranteed. And now the apostles in faith can go forward testifying of the resurrection, and then based on that, what else can they do? They can be firm in their eschatology. They can be absolutely confident in his soon return. The Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. I have an expectation that today can be the rapture of the church. The trumpet can sound today. You and I can be caught up to the clouds today. Why do I think that could happen today? Because Jesus rose on the third day. Because Jesus fulfilled the short-term prophecies. He's the guarantee that he knows what he's talking about. He's speaking the truth from God. A short-term prophecy supplies the certainty for all the long-term prophecies previously given. And only God can do this. This is part of what makes God God and Satan not God. (laughs) Okay, And all the posers that are out there like Nostradamus and all the other so-called, you know, predictors, prophets, prognosticators, and all of that. Hmm. They they give these. It's like your fortune in in the... You ever read your horoscope in the Statesman? good. <laughs> I was going to say, the first person that says yes, I'm going to say, you know, come talk to a deacon after church. But, you know, you, you get these, I mean, they're, they're about as good as your fortune cookies or other things. They're just, they're stupid. And they're so generic and they're so, you know, bland that, you know, you read Nostradamus and you, you could find a fulfillment in anything. Ooh, and people get all worked up about it. And everything's all so, you know, figurative language and very generic and very muddled. And then they try to find specificity after the fact when they, say, when they force a fulfillment into something that was very, very blurry to begin with. Not like the God of Israel who says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's a little hard to fake, okay? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And by the way, he's going to give birth in Bethlehem, Okay? Give those messages 700 years ahead of time, and then the night that it happens, go find some shepherds out there in the field and say, you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Well, who would, ever, who would expect to find a baby laying in a, in, a, in a food trough, an animal food trough, right? But we have the long-term prophecies. We have the short-term prophecies. The shepherds go running in there, and wow, there's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a, in a feeding trough. Okay. Well, that shouldn't surprise anybody because 700 years before that, he said a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that child will be born in Bethlehem. This is the nature of who our God is and what he predicts ahead of time. It's a beautiful thing. 
See, a three-year time frame can easily be validated by those who personally heard Isaiah's spoken message. A three-year time frame. He's going to have a, Isaiah's got a ministry that lasts through how many kings? How many decades does Isaiah serve? In fact, three years, what's that? He did three years naked one time, okay? We got that coming up. I think it's uh, chapter 20, where he has to loosen his garments. Yeah, that's coming up three, uh, four weeks from today. Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And Isaiah did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years as a sign and token against Egypt and Cush. So there's, there's Isaiah's work assignment. For three years, he has to go naked. A three-year time frame can easily be validated by those who personally heard Isaiah's spoken message. You know, do you ever get frustrated with these global warming alarmists? And they're talking about stuff that's going to happen 50 years from now, 60 years from now. Because you know they're going to be dead and gone by the time it doesn't happen. <laughs> and by then, there'll be another crowd doing some other thing. Back in the 70s, they were talking about the coming ice age and the global freezing that was going to take place. This, you know, why? You see, Satan has no shame. That's the thing. No shame. He doesn't have to speak truth. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. But a three-year time frame can easily be validated. We talked about this back in chapter 7. Let's look back at chapter 7. A three-year time frame can easily be validated. We saw the same dynamic at work in Isaiah chapter 7. Because he brought his son with him to give this message. He brought his son with him. I've got two sons here this morning, but I didn't bring them up into the pulpit. Okay, I could do so theoretically if I felt it would communicate something. This is what Isaiah does. He brings his son. And he brings, uh, in, in chapter 7 and verse 3, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Jashub. So he gets to bring Shear Jashub with him, okay? Why? Just because, you know, you want, you want to meet the king or something? I mean, what do you want to do? Why, why do you take your son with you? But we see he becomes a part of the illustration. He becomes a part of the message. He's actually referenced here in this, in this promise. And so he brings his son. He brings Shear Jashub with him, this little kid. And uh, he comes to the king and he, he tells the king to give a sign. Give a sign and ask any sign you want from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as shale or as high as heaven. Man, <laughs> what, what I would have asked for, right? Would I, you ask me to name my prize or name my miracle? Oh, I can, my, my carnal imagination immediately starts dreaming up all kinds of stuff. Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. He said, listen now, house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? Okay. You're commanded not to put the Lord your God to the test, but when he's telling you to name your price, obey him. Do what he's telling you to do. You're not putting him to the test by obeying him. You're putting him to the test by not obeying him. Okay? So therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Since you won't ask, since you're not going to ask, I'll, I'll, I'll do the asking for you. I'll give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. How's that? All right, now someday a virgin will have a son. Now what good does that do King Ahaz? Is he going to live long enough to see the manger? Is he going to live 700 more years and and watch uh, Bethlehem? No, he's not going to see that. But he's going to have a guarantee, a short-term guarantee, 
to give him the encouragement of this long-term prophecy of a virgin-born Savior. And then the he, in verse 15, refers to that virgin-born Savior, will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Even while he's still eating the baby food, even while he's still eating the soft stuff, he's still eating the little kid meal, okay? He's ordering off the children's meal at, at Denny's, okay? Even then, he has the spiritual capacity to not sin. He has the spiritual capacity to stay obedient to God the Father, even as a toddler, okay? Which, no, none of us raised a kid like that, but Mary and Joseph got to raise Jesus under those conditions. But then verse 16, here's what a lot of folks miss. He changes the subject. It's no longer the he, it's no longer the promised Messiah, the child of the virgin. Now it's this boy that he brought with him. Before this boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. Okay, The prophesied boy, the son of the virgin, the savior, the virgin-born savior boy, he will already know how to choose good and, and resist evil, even from his infancy. But this boy I brought with me, my own son, Shir Jashub, he's not yet reached that age of accountability. He's not yet old enough to be held accountable, morally accountable in the angelic conflict. And before Shir Jashub, my boy, knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now, here's something that Ahab or Ahaz will benefit from. Now, here's an encouragement that this king can, can, uh, can observe. It's a short-term prophecy. And here's this little kid that's standing in front of him. There's the prophet Isaiah and his kid. And he says, look, before he's old enough to reach the age of accountability, you're, you're terrified of Israel and, and Damascus, the Arameans of Damascus? Forget about them. They're going to be gone. They're going to be out of, your, out of your hair before this kid's old enough to, to distinguish between good and evil. Before he's generationally accountable, as we say, under the age of accountability. All right? And what happens? In a very short order, what happens? Those, the, the, the lands that were threatening uh, King Ahaz are gone. Okay? Don't have to worry about them anymore. Now he's got a bigger thing to worry about. <laughs> now he's got the Assyrians, right? The Assyrians come sweeping in and they destroy uh, the Arameans and they destroy Damascus and, and they sweep away the northern kingdom and so forth. But why would that bother King Ahaz? King Ahaz should be worshiping. He should be celebrating. He should be humbled over the fact that he just watched a short-term prophecy be fulfilled. And he can go back to that virgin-born prophecy and say, wait a minute, a virgin's going to have a child. There is a coming Savior on the way. And I know it's going to happen because the short-term prophecy happened just like he said it was going to happen. All right. These are the things that I think um, if, if you have an ear to hear, if you have an eye to see, if, you, if, you, if God has equipped you to have a, a passion for truth and a love for his word, man, you just eat this stuff up. If you're a skeptic or a Bible hater or whatever, or just a, none of this stuff is going to sway you, won't impress you at all. You just kind of look at it, you're like Pontius Pilate. Well, what is truth? Wash your hands of it, be in, be in despair, okay? You'd be like King Zedekiah. Zedekiah was sick to death of prophets. He hated them all. He said, you're all a bunch of liars anyway. One prophet said, you're going you know, to die in Babylon. And then another prophet said, You'll never see Babylon. Okay? 
You're going to die in Babylon. But then this other prophet said, you'll never see Babylon. So King Zedekiah, what does he do? He just throws his hands up and says, you're all a bunch of liars. You religious kooks. I can't trust any of you. And he throws his hands up to say, I can't believe any of it. It's, it's contradictory. What's the point? I can't understand it anyway. And this is what the unbelievers do to us today. They point at your Bible and say, well, that's all full of contradictions. You can't trust any of that. Who are you to say what it means? Blah, 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 blah. And, and those skeptics today are just like King Zedekiah back then. Because guess what? Both those prophecies were true. Reason being, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, what did they do? They took him and they plucked his eyes out. They killed his boys right in front of him. Last thing he saw was the death of his son. And then they plucked his eyes out and hauled him off to Babylon. So both prophecies were true. He died in Babylon, but he never saw it. He never saw it, okay? Both prophecies are true. We, we do the same thing with all the prophecies concerning the Christ. Out of Bethlehem, right? Or what about Hosea where it says, out of Egypt I will call my son. Or what about Isaiah that talks about Galilee of the Gentiles, Naphtali and Zebulun, the land that was treated with contempt. Out of you will shine forth a great light, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what is it? Is it Galilee? Is it Bethlehem? Is it Egypt? It seems like all of these prophecies are all contradictory and we would just throw up our hands and wash, you know, like Pilate and say, what is truth? And say, you can't trust any of it. No, it's just the opposite. You can trust all of it. You can trust every single promise, every single prophecy, every single thing said. And if you're you're struggling to put them together and find the way that they harmonize, great, struggle some more. Keep studying to show yourself approved. Get under teaching. Get under consistent teaching. Maybe you're not going to understand it all today. Great, whatever. Stick it on the back burner. Maybe next year it'll make sense. The year after that it'll make sense. Okay? You're not ready for it yet. The Holy Spirit's not giving it to you yet. Then relax about it. There's other stuff you've got to learn first. It's a great promise that we have here in all of Scripture. A three-year time frame can easily be validated by those who personally heard Isaiah's spoken message. The long-term prophecies are just as sure. The long-term prophecies are just as sure. And they will be eternally validated by those with eternal insight. Daniel chapter 12. There's a marvelous message here in Daniel chapter 12. Let's take a look at that. The long-term prophecies are just as sure. And they will be eternally validated by those with eternal insight. What's interesting, of course, is that much of what's given prophetically is not even humanly observable because we're so finite in our lifespans and whatnot. But the angels are on hand. They're watching. Fallen angels are watching. Elect angels are watching. Marvelous to consider some of these things. The, uh, what was going through the angels' mind when God became flesh? <laughs> you know? I mean, to me, the, the manger is, is, is powerful enough anyway, but for an angel to look at the manger? Think about that. Here's, here's the, the creator God of the universe who, with his hands, fashioned the entire universe, and now he's held in the hands of parents. The creator God is, is held in, in cradled in human hands. That just boggles the mind. 
Those who have insight. Those who have insight. Long-term prophecies are just as sure and it will be eternally validated by those with eternal insight. I want to get through this and if we have a little bit of time, I also want to get to Isaiah 45. So let's take a look at this. We're talking about the end times. All of the uh, tribulational warfare that takes place in Daniel chapter 11 and all of the back and forth with the king of the north and the king of the south and all the, the, uh, the struggle with Antichrist and what happens there. And then chapter 12 says, At that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be saved or will be rescued. So we have a prophecy here that's looking forward to the coming tribulation. This is still future. This has never happened in, in history. Don't let the people of the preterist tell you it's already fulfilled, okay? <laughs> Don't let them tell you, oh, well, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and that fulfilled all of that. No. This is unique in human history. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was not unique in human history. It had happened before, okay? It happens all the time. Cities get destroyed. But the tribulation is unique in human history. Nothing like it before, nothing like it ever again. And Michael the archangel will be the protection for the Jewish people. And everyone found written in the book will be rescued. Believers will be rescued. Unbelievers, of course, no point in rescuing them. They're going to go to hell anyway for the millennial kingdom. Then it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There are many that did not survive the tribulation, but they're going to get resurrected. They're going to get resurrected to enter into the millennial kingdom. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These, that is, the many who awake, to everlasting life. By the way, if you want to see the flip side of this, it's Revelation chapter 20, because you and I are going to be sitting there on thrones with Jesus, judging these guys, pronouncing their, their rewards. These to everlasting life. But the others, those that are not part of the many, they're going to have to wait a thousand years. They're going to be resurrected at the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom. And they will be resurrected to disgrace and everlasting contempt. It's called the resurrection of judgment, the resurrection of, of death. They will be raised to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Now, does that cause your head to spin? <laughs> you struggle to put that together? What's the order on this? Is it, we've got the, the resurrection of life, the resurrection of death, and they're a thousand years apart. This verse doesn't say they're a thousand years apart, okay? But Revelation 20 does. Compare Scripture to Scripture. Then verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. God is going to allow, I believe, tribulational saints are going to see things the church never dreamed of. They are going to have the insight that we struggle with because we're still prophetically looking forward to tribulation and second advent. We do much better looking back at first advent, right? <laughs> There's some clarity there with the hindsight, looking back to the cross. But we're looking forward to the rapture. We're looking forward to the tribulation, looking forward to second advent. And there's things that we're still a little unclear about. Things we don't quite have all the precision with. It's all right. They're going to have a greater degree of clarity because they're going to be dealing right there in it. 
Those who have insight will shine brightly like the expanse of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I hope we can be encouraged by this. This is why I want Isaiah and Jeremiah to have an impact at Austin Bible Church. I want these two prophetic books to transform what we do. Because we're going to live in a generation, if the Lord delays, if things get worse, like they look like they're getting worse, we're going to live in a, in a generation coming up and our kids are going to see things and they're going to need to have insight. They're, they're going to need to shine brightly. They're going to need to provide stability to lead many to righteousness. The darker it gets, the brighter our light shines. Think of the folks that our kids can lead to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because, <laughs> because actually in God they trust and everybody else is serving Caesar and worshiping the dollar and totally committed to, to secular life, temporal life living. Short-term prophecies, long-term prophecies. We can have stability because we know who's in charge. We know where we're headed. We know the end of the book, <laughs> okay? And it's good news at the end of the book, right? We win. Our Savior comes. All right. Those who have insight. Um, real quickly then, let me just wrap up. We're going to go to our closing hymn here in a moment, but uh, let us uh, let me just give you an extra bonus here. No charge. This, I won't charge you for this. Uh, Isaiah 45. The... Uh, It's a, it's a taunt. It's a challenge. Isaiah 45, 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth. He made it. He established it. He did not create it, tohu wabohu. He didn't create it a waste place. He formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord. There is none else. And this is what makes me, me. This is what makes God, God. That he is the I am. And he is the one that declares, let there be. And there is. Satan can boastfully claim to be like God, but he can't make it so just by saying it. And he can't tell the end from the beginning. He challenges them. He says, I didn't speak in secret in some dark land. I'm not some oracle that comes in hidden spooky messages. And he says, I spoke to the Jewish people and I put it in writing. I gave the Hebrew people a Hebrew canon, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. He's challenging the Gentiles, Moab and everybody else. Come to Israel. They are the people with the truth. All these nations, they've got no knowledge. They carry about their wooden idol. They pray to a God who cannot save. And then he invites all of the idolatry of the entire world to cooperate together. He says, declare and set forth your case. Let them consult together. Let's get a group project together. Let's let Thor and Jupiter and all these false gods all come together. All these fallen angels. You can't do what the God of the universe has already done. Declared the end from the beginning. Who of old has announced this? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. What we're studying today, what Isaiah and Jeremiah give us, is the very testimony of who our God is. And we should be trembling before His glory. Father, I thank You for this study. And I know it's a roller coaster, Father. I know we're, we're racing through these chapters. And today we're done with chapter 16. Next week is chapter 17. And, and Father, I just pray that as we 
as you provide us the blessings and the benefits from this uh, perspective, I pray that we might be diligent to present ourselves approved, that we would search the scriptures and see if these things are so, that we would be equipped to, to rightly divide this truth, that to add to uh, this information to what we've already learned, adding scripture to scripture, here a little, there a little, growing in the whole counsel of the word of God. And I pray too, Father, that we might come to increase our appetite, that we might appreciate not only this format, but also the the 930 format, the Wednesday evening services, the Wednesday morning services, every blessing of teaching you provide us with, Father, because the days are so short and the days are so evil. We want to, uh, we want to walk carefully, making the most of our time. Thank you, Father, for this flock. Thank you for a completed year. Looking forward to the blessings of the coming year. Thanking you again for your grace provision, Father, that, that makes all these things possible. We do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.